when we got colonized and put on reservation is, is basically when our health started to go downhill. And we're still facing that systemic racist system. And until that changes, um, we're gonna be in that same boat, no matter what. My name is Cecily Ross, and I'm a junior at the Jackson Hole High School in Wyoming. For the past nine months, I have been devoting a lot of time to one specific research question. Before I reveal the question itself, I want to give a little background on how I landed on this question in the first place. When most of you think of philanthropy or charity, your mind likely goes to happy puppies, smiling babies, um, things such as this. Usually very positive images are connected to concepts of philanthropy and charity. However, I'm here to challenge this view in some ways, and that's because of a summer trip I went on last year. For a little bit of history about me, my mom grew up in Zambia, Africa, and my dad grew up on the East Coast in America. And I was visiting my mom's homeland this summer when I noticed one really common factor throughout the country that I got to see, which obviously was not everything. But from what I did see on my six-week trip, I noticed this common factor of so many nonprofit organizations or NGOs. The vast majority of these nonprofit organizations were run and funded by white expats or foreigners. And more often than not, these nonprofit organizations were geared towards wildlife in the area, such as elephants or rhinos and often were more focused on poaching and other dangers to wildlife. And while I saw the objectives of these organizations being carried out in beautiful ways, I was also struck by an overwhelming observation of humanity and some of the worst poverty. And the reason this was so confusing to me was that there was obviously an influx of foreign power kind of giving aid to this country, yet it was so not obvious when you looked around at the conditions in which people were living. To be exact, in 2015, 90% of Zambia's population was living on five and a half dollars or less per day, and at the same time, the U.S. is contributing around $500 million a year to the country. And on top of that, there have been almost 2,000 NGOs registered in Zambia since 2013. And what really piqued my interest about all of this was that so little of the NGOs were actually run by local leaders themselves, Zambians themselves, which made me wonder whether if these organizations were run by such locals, if they would have higher success rates. So obviously, to answer this question required a lot of research, 
And in the process, I realized that similar and very parallel issues exist right outside of my backyard on the Wind River Reservation, where Native American people were colonized hundreds of years ago. This one similarity is clear, as Zambia was a British colony, and the northern Arapaho and eastern Shoshone people were put onto the Wind River Reservation in 1868 by the U.S. government. To learn more about the health conditions on the Wind River Reservation and how these were worsened by colonizers, I talked to Kelly Pingree, an enrolled member of the Shoshone Bannock tribe, who is a co-director of the Wind River Food Sovereignty Project. Um, in the next quote, she describes what her project aims to do and how health conditions on the Wind River Reservation were worsened by white colonizers, just like how they were in Zambia. Like what our program focuses on is like um, those food ways that we lost. Um, a lot of tribes now are going back to looking at those foodways because a lot of our foodways were very, very healthy. Um, when we got colonized and put on reservation is, is basically when our health started to go downhill. Yeah. Um, before that time, we didn't know what diabetes was. We didn't know what heart disease was. We didn't know any of those because um, of our of the diets that we ate were very lean meat, um, a lot of you know roots and berries and herbs, um, and so it just made our people really healthy. And plus, you know, they were very very active um, when we got colonized, and a lot of that got taken away where we couldn't roam, couldn't hunt, couldn't do a lot of those things that they used to be able to do. Um, this is where the health, and then, you know, and, and realizing that we couldn't do those foodways anymore because of being put on reservations. To provide some context, infant mortality rates of American Indians is 1.6 times higher than the national average and pregnant Native women are 4.5 times more likely to die in delivery than white Americans. Native Americans also die at higher rates than other Americans from chronic liver disease and cirrhosis, diabetes mellitus, and respiratory diseases, including many others. Furthermore, the social environment of reservations include high rates of poverty, abuse, sexually transmitted diseases, and violence. The rate at which HIV-AIDS exists on reservations is much higher than the rest of America as well. And after researching all these facts, I was confronted with the question of whether white people should be helping or not. And this question sounds ridiculous, at least to me, it felt ridiculous to ask because of course, we should be working as hard as we can to get health care conditions better on the reservations. But I was, I was asking myself the question of whether white people should be inserting themselves at all on the reservations, even 
with good intentions. And this question also included nonprofit organizations and charity that is directed towards the Wind River Reservation. And the reason that I included nonprofits in this question is because so many of them are run by white founders. The confounding question for me was that although white people were the ones who had inflicted all of this suffering on Native people, it felt almost colonizer-esque to invade again, even with the intentions of improving healthcare on the Wind River Reservation. I reached quite a few conclusions in the process, one of which was that I absolutely cannot speak for the Native people of the Wind River Reservation, which is why I have, I'm honored to have Kelly Pingree speak on this podcast. Further, later on, instead of pinpointing ways to help the Wind River Reservation specifically, I'm simply going to outline a guide for responsible philanthropy in the face of being someone of privilege and entering a community that might have historical complications or implications. This topic is also really relevant because of the mindset that it is easier and more convenient to donate to wildlife causes than human ones. One common phenomenon, especially in Wyoming, is that the ultra-wealthy are willing to donate to protect the beautiful outdoors that they get to enjoy, but turn a blind eye to more humanitarian needs like helping with the housing crisis. The book called Billionaire Wilderness by Justin Farrell sums this problem up with a series of interviews of both wealthy and non-wealthy residents. One of these interviewees who was a lower-income resident once described that they feel the wealthy residents are more willing to protect and advocate for wolves than for immigrant workers. Hi, Dad. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Charlie Ross. I live in Jackson Hole. So how long have you been a real estate agent here? I've been a real estate agent since 1995. Okay. How have you seen um, your clientele and the town change since you've been a realtor? Well, I've seen it change as a realtor in many ways. Jackson has not been a popular destination for in the way that it is now for all that long in the mid-90s, the dot-com time of growth in the economy brought a lot of new people to Jackson because they had the resources and the airport started to allow jet aircraft in 1989. So the number of incoming seats on planes increased, flights were more efficient, and then the private uh, aircraft uh, service became more popular and available as the wealth in the country increased. Okay. How have your clients changed? My clients have changed along with the triggers that make Jackson more accessible and and more popular to a broader range of people. How have you seen philanthropy in Jackson change as the years go on? In the mid-90s, there was a group of philanthropists here that had 
really had foresight starting in the 80s, I would say, who had developed a core of, of giving that really helped develop and then solidify organizations like the Jackson Hole Land Trust and the Jackson Hole Alliance for Responsible Planning and other especially wildlife-related organizations that protected the habitat and the lands around Jackson Hole. Those That core group really created the sense of philanthropy that when new people came to this valley, they were introduced to that concept and how important it was to preserve something that was created by the acquisition of large ranches and, and, and development of Grand Teton National Park back in the 1920s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. So that attraction to the land and the wildlife and, and the reason people have come here for a long time translated into protecting it as more people came. Okay. From that, would you say that humanitarian needs like the housing crisis have been secondary to these wildlife organizations? As Jackson has changed and grown, other pressures have come that uh, involve human needs. And while wildlife and the landscape are important, it became apparent that our economy is fragile here. It has always been a seasonal economy. Jobs can be seasonal, income can be seasonal. And for many years, that was for the folks who came here and understood that and found a way to work within it. But as Jackson became more popular and the social challenges of humans anywhere inevitably come in as well. All right, so my last question for you is, as a longtime local, what advice would you give to philanthropists to distribute their resources and funds more equitably across both wildlife and humanitarian needs? Uh, that's a great question. I think our challenge right now in the nonprofit sector is that those people I spoke of that had the foresight back in the 80s and 90s to establish the uh, philanthropic story in, in Jackson Hole. Many are getting older, they're moving to other places or have passed on, and a younger and different type of person is coming to Jackson that has accumulated a lot of wealth. And some of them are quite experienced in philanthropy and they get here and they see the opportunities to meet new friends, get involved and do good things. Others, uh, don't necessarily have that experience. So the nonprofits, you know, wish to reach out to people and include them in the social fabric and find out what their interests are. And how do we do that? We engage and we try to remain the small community that's connected as best we can. And there are opportunities in whether it's the environment, wildlife, social needs, humanitarian needs, and we just have to work together to find the right fit for people with the resources to apply that money where it's needed so that it's spread out more equitably.
We are a county with the largest income gap in the nation. As the CBS writer Suri Aviv wrote, you either have three jobs or three homes when you live here. The average income of our small population is enormous, at 312,000, while the average income for the whole country is a tiny fraction of this, at $31,000. In our small town, there's a staggering 240 plus nonprofit organizations. We host one of the most philanthropic communities in America, and this is amazing in so many ways but it also gives us a responsibility to have a deeper understanding of how donations and charity can be a detriment to society as well as a benefit. We need to understand that philanthropy by itself isn't just automatically a good thing. And after this quick break, I'm gonna jump right back into my interview with Kelly Pingree as she helps us to understand what living on the Wind River Reservation is really like and how white people are still impacting native lives today. just like to take a moment to thank my teacher Mr. Brazil for helping me to construct this project throughout the year and pushing me and my classmates to learn about things that we never would have otherwise and encouraging us to explore topics that are interesting to us. Initially in my conversation with Kelly she kind of just told me about how outside influences have been impacting the reservations for hundreds of years and how these impacts have really been rooted in the very foundations of what it's like to be a Native American today. So here she is discussing that. They truly believed that we were heathens and we didn't believe in God and, and, um, and, uh, you know, that we had to be saved. Um, and I think that early in the beginnings, um, and this is after I think um, we were put on reservations, after we were colonized, I think they truly believed that for us to fit into society, that they needed to get rid of who we were. They needed to strip us of everything that we've known and make us become like like white white colonizers because they a lot of them believed and the government itself too uh believed that that would be the only way we would we would be accepted like um kill the indian save the man type thing yeah um which um so i think like us we were like the only pretty much the only race that totally got stripped of their culture, of their way of life, their food ways, their their beliefs. Even though I have been criticizing 
nonprofit organizations for the past few minutes. I do believe that nonprofit action is necessary for many global issues, and this is backed by statistics because, to be exact, 1 in 25 people on Earth needs humanitarian aid to survive. I think that for a project to be sustainable, the white and wealthy need to be able to leave without the entire mission collapsing. Because also, if aid has been working thus far, then why aren't the people of the Wind River Reservation in a better position? And the answer is not because of the fault of the people there, because before white colonizers came, these communities were thriving in ways that we can only imagine today. It's also important to note that there are other alternatives to nonprofit action. For example, my mom, Alexandra Fuller, has chosen to take action on the conditions in, on the Wind River Reservation by paying reparations annually. And these reparations are equivalent to her property tax. This method of donating, one could say, is different than nonprofit action because she has no control over where the money is going to go after she sends it over. And this is really special because it kind of acknowledges the fact that she is not part of the Wind River Reservation and will never be perceived as someone who can make those decisions. And the other way that this is different is that just because it is called a reparation, it's directly acknowledging the genocide that occurred to the Native Americans. Anyways, here is my mom to talk about her reparations. Welcome, mom. Would you like to introduce yourself? My name's Alexandra Fuller. Um, I grew up in Southern Africa. I moved here in my early 20s. I have three children. You're one of them. I spent 17 years writing for National Geographic, and I'm the author of several books of nonfiction. Thank you. So how would you describe reparations? I think the understanding of what reparations really are dawned on me slowly. You know, I think there's the sort of dictionary definition, and then there's the realization that there is a need to restore and repair you know, communities that have been unfairly robbed of land or that were subject to broken treaties, ongoing broken treaties, systemic uh, and systemic injustice. And I think the dawning came to me because writing for National Geographic, I spent time um, on a story in South Africa after apartheid looking at um, how to restore and repair relationships after such an atrocious systemic institutionalization assault on, you know, the majority indigenous community. And, you know, I, it's all very well, I think, to go and speak to victims of a historic and ongoing oppression. But for me, it was much more enlightening to speak to people who had descended from, um, you know, I guess the oppressor side, you would say, and the, the settler side. And there was this... Um, priest, a, a white Afrikaans priest, and he said, you know, the way he had thought about reparations was this. If your grandfather stole a bike from my grandfather, 
And then you return the bike to me with nothing left. The wheel's gone, the chain's gone, that's just the frame. Um, you know, that's bad, but at least it's a, you know, attempt to, to sort of acknowledge what happened. But if not only you keep the bike, but put a basket on the bike, say you earned the bike, you know, there's, it, there's an unfairness and an anger, I think, that results from that, that is sort of in the subconscious of a, of a culture and a community. So for me, restoring and repairing as best you can. So what do your reparations look like on an annual basis? Well, I can't do reparations in Southern Africa, which was the nexus of, I guess, well, the beginning of my understanding of this kind of injustice. But having seen um, or really spent time studying, you know, systemic racial injustice, I could see that what had happened in Southern Africa and white settler communities onto indigenous communities had happened here too, um, on to, you know, Native American populations. And I had gone out, again, for National Geographic, uh, onto the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation and had started to have conversations with community members about rep reparations, whether they were appropriate, what that would look like. And I think the first thing you have to do as a white settler is believe a point of view that is not yours and that people feel wronged want an apology, and above all, the apology isn't enough. It's empty without an amends. If you really ruin someone's life and just say, I'm sorry, shrug, and walk away, but they're still wrapped up in a tangle of wreckage, what is there to that? Um, and around that time, I uh, really kind of handed the well, at, at that time, Standing Rock was happening, and the Seventh Cavalry uh, went and made apologies on behalf of their uh, unit for what had been instituted against American Indians, you know, with Custer, with um, Wounded Knee. And Leonard Crowdog, um, you know, accepted the apology. And then he said, but, you know, there needs to be accountability for broken treaties, for the fact that you've made liars of us. Um, and then he said, you shouldn't pay your taxes, but that's not an option. If I didn't pay my taxes, I would absolutely probably get arrested the very next minute. I'm the kind of person who gets caught for things like that. Um, <clears throat> and so it came to me that what I should do is pay my taxes twice. And so I pay my property taxes to my settler government, you know, the county government, state government. Um, and I pay my, that whatever that amount is assessed to, I pay that again to the tribes and go once a year um, and make an amends of my property in the amount of my property taxes because an amends should be an uncomfortable amount of money. It should make you think, oh, and it should be an uncomfortable response. It's not charity. I don't have a say over what happens. This is, it's not there to make me feel better. It's certainly not there to make indigenous populations feel better. It's a paltry amount. It will never, you know, restore herds of wild bison or, you know, religious or, or, you know, take back what happened in boarding schools and all injustice and so on. But it, it, it's important that as a ritual and as a um, gesture, it be significant. I can't, well, one challenge I got was, but you're not even from here. <laughs> and my response is, yes, but as a white settler, my ancestors did plenty of damage, not just 
maybe not here, but certainly Nigeria and Tasmania and places that I can't get to. I can't go make amends for what happened under the auspices of the British Empire in Kenya or even Rhodesia where I grew up, but I can do it right here, right now where I am living. Okay, so after extensive interviews and different research that I wasn't able to include all of in this podcast, you're probably wondering, so what is this, what is the conclusion? And my answer to that is that I think there are certain guidelines that we as privileged and white people, if that's who you are, need to adhere to when trying to help other communities. Number one, don't use the communities you're helping for the promotion of your own career. Two, make sure you've been invited to these communities before you show up. You don't want to supply help that's unwanted or comes off as offensive. Three, establish relationships and connections before asking if they need or want assistance. Four, research the nonprofits that you want to donate to to make sure their leadership is representative of the people they aim to help. 5. Ask the question of if this project can stand alone without outsider white presence. I also have some other tips. For one, make sure that if you are a philanthropist and you're receiving statistics of kind of if there has been um, return on your donations or help, that this isn't just a nonprofit trying to satisfy donor needs and that everything is happening in ways that aren't just looking for the result statistic and are actually being really respectful and responsible in the process. And my very last piece of advice that I want everyone to take away from listening to this podcast is that we all need to be the subject of our own criticism. When looking at communities that are struggling, it can be really easy to blame citizens who live there or blame certain aspects that you think are within those people's control when really you should be criticizing your own part in what is occurring there and Criticize your own, your own tendency to be condescending or look down upon communities that are struggling because most likely you had a part in those struggles at some point on some level because there can't exist poverty and deprivation without some group of people benefiting from that and really investigate whether you're part of that group. I think that philanthropy can be a really powerful and amazing tool, and I think that we've been a little bit too cavalier with it in the past in thinking that the moment you donate, you are exempt from any investigations of intentions or of where the money went, and I think this needs to change. By following certain guidelines, 
I think we can really improve the culture of charity and donating, especially in Jackson Hole where there is so much of it. If you listened to this episode, I hope you were able to take a lot away from it and look deeper into the history and the future of philanthropy. I hope some of this information was useful or made you think harder about your role in these systems, and thank you so much for listening. A special thanks to Kelly Pingree, Alexandra Fuller, my mother, and Charlie Ross, my father, for including their interviews in this podcast, and this episode was produced, compiled, and edited by me, Cecily Ross. Thank you for listening. <laughs>